in chapter 14 as we continue to think about Jesus being God, Jesus being God's son, God the son. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples on the very night that he is about to be betrayed. This is his final night with his disciples before the crucifixion. And these are the truths that he shares with them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's a passage which is a good passage for us to spring off to in this, right in the very first verse, right off the bat. Jesus says, uh, you believe in God, you trust in God, treat me the same, because I am God. That's the implication. And then down the end of the passage, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I am exactly like the Father. I am his exact image, representation of him. It's a bit of a mystery. The question has been asked, and theologians and Bible scholars have certainly sought to answer it. <clears throat> How could deity, with all of its perfections, unite with humanity, with all of its limitations, in a single integrated person whom we know as Jesus Christ? How is that possible? Well, we don't know how. We just know that it did happen. We can't explain it. To us, it's a mystery. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, beyond all question, the, the mystery of godliness is great. It's a mystery, and it's a great mystery. He, the Lord Jesus, God, he appeared in a body, he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels, he was preached among the nations, he was believed on in the world, he was taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness, of God appearing in a body, is a great mystery that is not explained for us, it's just revealed to us. And last week we spoke about when Jesus, the sovereign Son of God, became man, the Bible says that he emptied himself, and what does that mean? And we can only interpret that, uh, try to explain it. And different people have done it different ways. And some of these are not acceptable. Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus gave up his divine attributes and so that he was only a human. That's not the answer. Nor is it that he gave up some of his attributes and he kept some of the others so that he was fully human and partly God. That's not it. The best explanation, I think, is that Jesus retained all of his divine attributes, but he, it's like he veiled them, he covered them. He, while he had them, he didn't access them while he was human. 
So he is fully God and fully man. One person, two natures, divine and human. It's a mystery. But that's, I think, the reality. Best illustration I can give. As a dad, as a parent, and you're playing with a young child, your child. I played cricket with my son, Shane. And he was, like his father, unbelievably gifted and talented. <laughs> Pride goes before a fall. He was very well coordinated with his hand-eye. Many kids are, and he was. And so I used to take him out the back and play cricket. I used to play cricket. I used to play first-grade cricket. I used to be an opening... Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. I used, to play, I used to be an opening fast bowler for first-grade cricket. Probably in today's standards, that's like about maybe fast-medium or something. So when I played cricket with my two-year-old and three-year-old son, son in the backyard, I let him have it. Full rip. Well, how's he going to learn? No, you don't. While I had the ability to bowl a lot faster, when I played cricket with my son, I would bowl like this, underarm. And you're not aiming at the ticket, at the wicket <laughs> ticket. You're not, a, I played cricket, don't you worry. You're actually aiming at the bat. So you're bouncing the ball so that he can hit it to encourage him and so on. And we had a rule, don't do this. If you're a young parent, don't have this rule with your kids. If you already have, repent. I had a rule for him because he was only a little kid. You would get him out easily. So yeah, I had, the house rule was you had to get him out three times before he was out. So we played that for months and months and months and maybe for a, 18 months or something like that and then we had a church picnic and they're playing cricket <laughs> well I transitioned to the different environment but he didn't so we're out in the middle and he's, he's batting and he gets out and they all clap him and he's supposed to leave and he said no you've got to get me out three times <laughs> they looked at me senior pastor of the church and they said what are you teaching your son <laughs> my point through all of that I still had the ability but I didn't access the ability. I toned it down. That's what Jesus did. He had the ability. He was God, but he toned it down. He just didn't access it while he was here. Does that make sense? So he was still fully God, and that's the topic we're going to look at this morning. Um, just to revise very quickly, um, Jesus is a person who is in history. That's the Son of God who took on human flesh, literal human flesh, was born into our world and he lived approximately 35, maybe a few more years, on earth. There are 17 non-Christian sources that cover over about the 125 years after his crucifixion, um, from historians to philosophers to commentators to other religious leaders. 17 non-Christian sources refer to this person, Jesus, as a part of the human race. So... Even our New Testament establishes very clearly that he was born in space-time history, born in a particular time of Caesar Augustus, died at a certain time under Pilate. Um, it's not a fabricated story, it's quite authentic and it's a, it can be established historically using good historical method. We have said a couple of weeks ago, he is not only a person in history, he is a fully human person, son of man, fully human, as human as us, but probably without a sinful nature without a sin nature. Tempted in all points like as we are, but never once gave in to sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but was without sin. 
He was a fully righteous person, someone who pleased the Father. In fact, at the end of his life, the Lord Jesus in John 14.30 says, The prince of the world is coming, Satan is coming, and he has no grip on me. He can't find any point of attachment in my life. It's the same word that is used over in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse, verse 26 says, uh, Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a point of attachment in your life. That's the same word Jesus uses here. The evil one is coming and see, there is no foothold in my life. He can't grab me. There was no point of sin in Jesus's life for the evil one to accuse him. The apostle Peter writes, he committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. It's the consistent testimony of the New Testament authors. The Lord Jesus was a fully righteous person, person in history, fully human, tempted as we are yet without sin and therefore fully righteous. And this morning he is a fully divine person. Did Jesus ever say, I am God? Did he ever put out his hand and shake hands with somebody and they said, hi, my name is John, and he said, that's good, I'm God? Did he ever do that? No. Did he go to a party, have a name tag with having God written on it? No. But he did claim, unmistakably, clearly and often, that he was God. The more you know your Old Testament, the more clear the evidence is. Jesus claimed to be divine both directly and by implication. This will be like drinking from a fountain, I guess, or a fire hydrant, I guess. A lot of information. But take some of it and retain it and use it to equip yourself so that you can pass this on to others. You, don't, you won't retain it all, but you'll retain some of it and file those away in your memory. For instance, in the Old Testament, the name of the Lord given to us, to Moses, is Yahweh. Well, Jesus goes very close to identifying himself with that name. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it's the name that is revealed to Moses. It's translated in English as I am that I am. And throughout John's Gospel, you'll get Jesus saying, I am, the divine name. And in fact, very specifically, John 8, 58 Jesus says, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. The Jews understood clearly what he meant. He was claiming to be pre-existent. He was claiming to be there before Abraham, and Abraham was 2,000 years previous to that. Jesus used the divine titles, the divine names. The book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. John 17, Jesus says, Father... Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He claimed to have the glory of God. Or Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. First and last. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, the Lord Jesus says, I am the first and the last. He uses divine titles to refer to himself. He calls himself the judge of all people. John chapter 5 verse 27. In the Old Testament, it's God who is the shepherd, it's God who is the bridegroom, it's God who is the light of the world. Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the bridegroom. The better we know our Old Testament, the more clearly you will see how Jesus used divine titles and references, attributes, to refer to himself. It becomes increasingly clear. It becomes brighter and brighter. Secondly, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. 
even using the prerogatives that only God could have. In Mark chapter 2, in that story where there was a paralyzed guy and four guys let him down through the roof. Remember what Jesus says when he gets to the floor? He sees their faith and he says to him, your sins are forgiven you. And the Jewish leaders who were present at the time rightly concluded, who is this guy? He can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. That's correct. That's what Jesus was saying. And then he takes it another step. Don't be offended at me and what I'm claiming, the right to forgive sins. But so that you may know that I have that right, that I have that authority, that I am God. He says to the paralyzed man, stand, rise up and walk. He gives physical demonstration that he has the right, the authority to forgive sins. In John chapter 5, he says he has the power to judge, to raise and to judge the dead. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those whom he is pleased to give it. The Old Testament says very clearly that God only gives life, that God only raises the dead, that it's only God who judges us. And yet Jesus says he gives life, he raises the dead. He is going to be the one who will judge others. Jesus claimed in John chapter 5 that he should be honoured as God. In fact, to not honour the Son is to dishonour the Father. John 5.23 uh, That all may honour the, honor the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Jesus is claiming, my second point, the prerogatives of God. He even accepted worship. People would come to him, bow down to him, and the Bible actually says, and worshipped him. He never once rebuked it. He never once refused it. He never once corrected it. He received it every time. And yet when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, were in a country town, and the people came out of the city and they fell down to worship them, saying things like, the gods have come down to us, Paul and Barnabas said, don't do that. We are human just like you. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, it's John falls at the feet of an angel and the angel says, no, no, don't do that. I'm an angel. Worship the Lord your God and him alone. But when they bowed down and went to worship Jesus, he never once rejected it. He never once refused it. The leper does it. The rulers do it. The disciples in the boat do it after he calms the storm. The Canaanite women, the mother of James and John, the Gerasene demoniac, the disciples after the resurrection. The list goes on and on and on. The most classic one, John 20 verse 28 opposite end of John's gospel that's Thomas at the resurrection and when he sees Jesus appear on that next Sunday morning Thomas exclaims falling down worshipping him my Lord and my God and Jesus not only re receives it he actually commends it he says that's right do you believe because you've seen me blessed are those who will do exactly that but they've never seen me. Jesus receives, expects, and because he is God, requires to be worshipped. So Jesus used divine titles and attributes, referred to himself. He used the prerogatives that only God would do, uh, forgiving sin, praying to him, being worshipped. Jesus claimed equal authority with God. As we read through the gospel, some of these things we can read over, but... Jesus seems to have put his words and his teaching on a par with God's word, the Old Testament. Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes the Old Testament text, you have heard that it was said, that's God's word, but I say to you, he adds what he is saying to the level, the same thing, 
At the end of Matthew's Gospel, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. All authority. He claimed equal authority with God. Matthew 24, he even says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's claiming some sort of divine authority, divine honour. He clearly expected his words to have the impact or to be accepted as God's words to him. In fact, John 12, 48, he says to the people who rejected him, the very words that I have spoken to you will condemn you on that last day. The very words that I have spoken to you, God will use those to judge you. Jesus requested prayer in his name. Um, let me read you this list from Kenneth Samples. He says it much better than any other, much better than I. Jesus acquainted himself with the Father. <clears throat> Jesus says, to know Jesus is to know God. If you knew me, you would know my Father. We read that, John 14, 7. Or in the same passage, to see Jesus is to see God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. To encounter Jesus is to encounter God, John 14, 11. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God. To welcome Jesus is to welcome God. To honour Jesus is to honour God. To hate Jesus is to hate God. To come to Jesus is to come to God. To love Jesus is to love God. And to obey Jesus is to obey God. All of those are in John's Gospels, chapters 14, 15 and 16. It's like a drumbeat that just gets louder and louder and louder in John's Gospel. Jesus claimed equality, equal authority with God. Jesus requested prayer in his name. You believe in God, well, you can believe in me also. And you pray to the Father, but you've never prayed to me. You've never asked anything in my name. And he encourages us to come and to pray to him and in his name. A couple more. <clears throat> Jesus said he came down from heaven. John 6 several times which implies of course that he existed before he was born it implies therefore that he is eternal and that teaching is certainly repeated all the way through the new testament that jesus is the eternal son of god the eternal god the second person of the tri trinity in john chapter 10 he says i and the father are one and then finally jesus says very boldly that he is the only way to heaven John 14, verse 6. When you stop and think about it, heaven is God's place. God owns heaven. And God is the one, therefore, who grants access to heaven and no one else. That he is the one who determines who stays here forever. Other religions of the world can make statements about we have a pathway to heaven and we're providing a way to heaven. But Jesus debunks, he removes all of those claims when he makes the exclusive statement I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets into heaven except through me. Implying I own heaven. It's my place. That's where my Father and I live. And of course, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Did Jesus ever deny being God? Two times, <clears throat> there are two references rather, that people who do not accept that Jesus is fully God, they say, see, this proves that Jesus denied it. The first reference is to the rich young ruler. 
who when he comes to the Lord Jesus, he says, good teacher, we know that you have been sent from God because nobody could do the works you're doing unless he's been come from, something like that. Good teacher. Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? For none except God is good. And people use that reference or that story to say Jesus is denying that he is good. No, he's not. He's not denying that he is good. He's not denying that he is God. What he's doing is trying to get the rich young ruler who made that statement to examine the implications of what he's saying. Good teacher. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Do you realise what you are calling me? He's pushing and probing for the rich young ruler. Or the second reference that people use to deny that Jesus denied him being his own deity is John 14:28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. So Jesus is saying that the, the Father is God and that he is greater than I and therefore I am not God because there is only one God. That's the argument. But that's not what Jesus is saying either. When he utters this statement, greater is a comparative. <clears throat> it's like saying, um, Barack Obama, President of the United States, one of the most powerful individuals in the world. Barack Obama is greater than I am. Well, he is. He has more power, he has more money, he has more influence. He's greater than I am. He's not a different person to me. He's just as human and just as uh, limited as I am as a man. But he's greater in one sense than me. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father is greater than I am. We're not different. We're not different in essence. But the Father still has access to his full attributes, divine. Whereas I, in my incarnation, in my humanity, in my limitation, have limited myself and so therefore he is greater than I am. So Jesus is not denying his deity. He's bringing clarity to his own incarnation. Well, what does all of this mean for us? These several things. Number one, and I think I have five statements. Because God himself came into the world, became human, he valued humanity, he made us in his image, that ought to impact us. The truth of the incarnation, I think, is still working its implications out in our lives. But it means that we ought to value one another very highly. That every person we meet is made in the image of God. And that God has made them, and God, therefore, loves them, cares for them, wants them to come to know Jesus. That ought to become a filter for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was a Lutheran pastor and he was enslaved because of the Nazis in Germany, and they were doing atrocious things to other people. Some prisoners came to Dietrich Bonhoeffer one day and they said, um, are human beings no better than beasts? They're not worth anything. To which Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, no, that's not correct. Because God himself became a man for man's sake. Because God took on human flesh, that's what ought to govern our perspective on fellow humans, that they are to be valued. Even if they are of a different nationality to us, a different religious group to us, a different sexual bias to us, we ought to value them as God does. God the Son valued lost humanity because he took on human flesh. God the Spirit values humanity 
because he created a body for the Lord Jesus. He anointed Jesus throughout his ministry. Each person of the triune God reveals that they value sinners. They're precious to him and therefore they need to be precious to us. We all matter to God. So if you have somebody in your life, and many of us do, you have somebody in your life who is irritating you, who they're on the other side of your like list, they're maybe even on your hate list, if you have one of those, then work on your attitude. Ask God to change your perspective. Help go, ask God to give you his perspective on these people. We are to value one another because God values us. Number two, because of the incarnation, we ought to celebrate his birth. I know this is controversial. I spoke about this at Mops. But I reckon Christmas is one of the highlights of the year that God has put into our secular calendars the reminder that he came into the world and that ought to be celebrated. Our children should know that we value this incarnation of the Son of God by celebrating his birthday more than we value and celebrate our loved one's birthdays. My kids should know that I value Jesus' incarnation, his birth, more than Rhonda's birthday, more than my birthday, more than their birthday. This should have higher priority in the way that we model and demonstrate to our kids that it's important. And of course, we look forward to his second coming, watching for him, waiting for him, working for him, worshipping him. Value one another, celebrate his birth. And not just at Christmas, I don't mean, but especially at Christmas. We should celebrate his birth all the way through the year. Number two, we should believe this teaching. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We should accept this teaching of the incarnation, the teaching that God became man, fully God, fully man. Not just accept the teaching, but because the teaching is true, we should make a response to it, which is one of commitment, one of trust. It's not believing the teaching that saves us. It's embracing Jesus that saves us. And like I said at the carols last Sunday night, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Many people believe. They believe he was real. They believe he was a person in history. They believe he was Lord. They believe he died, that he rose. They believe it. They think it's correct. But they've never actually received. They haven't made that response. And it's important that each of us, each individual person, makes that heartfelt response. We have to invite Jesus into our life. We have to ask him to forgive us for our sin. We have to bow the knee before him, trust him personally, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our lives. That's what he requires of us. So that's the third application. We should believe this teaching and we should receive Jesus personally because that's why he became man, to become our saviour and he is to be received. Two more. Number four, like Jesus, if you have received him, if you're a follower of, the Lord, of Christ, then like him, you are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's exactly what he prays in John 17. He says, the disciples, they are still in the world, but they are not of the world. I, pray, I don't pray that you'll take them out of the world, but I pray that you'll protect them from the evil one. 
Jesus Christ clearly wants his disciples, he wants us to be in the world. He wants us associating with people who are not his followers. He wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to be living among, but different to. Not superior to, just living different to, by our own standards, by his standards. And people will notice the difference. We are not to be isolated, living in a Christian enclave where the only thing we do is always with Christians, always with fellow believers. The Lord Jesus wants us to be in the world, to look for the opportunities, to pray for the opportunities, to spend time with those who are not yet believers. And so coming off that number five, like Jesus, we need to give ourselves to reach the lost. That's why he came. John 17, verse 18, he said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you into the world. We have been commissioned by the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus. We have been commissioned to go. Go into all the world and make disciples, he says. Missions is not optional. It's mandatory. He wants us to be ambassadors. He wants us to be evangelists. He wants us to be looking for the opportunities to speak the faith. And some of us do that really well and we're gifted accordingly and some of us struggle with it. It doesn't change the obligation that we are required to do it. And associated with that, not only to commit ourselves to reaching the lost and making that a priority in our lives and in our church, but also to humbly serve. To humbly serve that's what he did that's what he taught he said if you want to be great become a servant if you want to be first become a slave for the son of man did not come to serve did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many we are to follow his example to humbly serve to step up not to think that some things are above us, are below us, and we are too superior or whatever to lend a helping hand. The Lord Jesus calls us to humbly serve. And we can do that in all different sorts of ways. So, conclusion, value one another and others. Celebrate his birth, especially at Christmas, but not only. Before Christmas and after Christmas. Believe the teaching and receive him personally. Be in the world, but not of it and be committed to reaching the lost and serving others humbly. Let's pray together. Jesus, because you have come into our world, you're our high priest, and therefore we can confidently come before you into the very throne room of heaven where grace and mercy await us to help us in time of need. So we come this morning, Lord Jesus, and we want to bow to you, acknowledging that you are Lord, that you are God, worthy of our worship and worthy of our loyalty, worthy of our full surrender. I pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to those who are still on the way, to those who haven't yet received you, to those who haven't yet confessed you as Lord or been fully obedient to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and draw them to yourself. And for those of us, Lord, who are followers, I pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might be fully surrendered and that we might honour you in every aspect of our life. Because you are God, you are worthy of all. We pray in your wonderful name. And everybody said...